I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week on the podcast, we are going to take your mind off what's going on outside. And if you're pulling up this show in the morning, I encourage you to maybe wait until about five o'clock because we are going back in time to a very tipsy period in medieval Germany. In 1536, an obscure poet named Vincent Obsipaeus published a long manuscript called The Art of Drinking, or De Arte Bebendi. Given that the guy was writing almost 500 years ago, his advice is pretty solid. Moderation, not abstinence, is the key to lasting sobriety, he says. But then he also teaches us how to win at drinking games and how to give a proper toast. Joining us this week on the show is the man who brought this sound advice to modern English, Michael Fontaine, professor of classics at Cornell University, who's newly rebranded How to Drink, a classical guide to the art of imbibing, is the first proper English translation of Vincent Obsipaeus's ode to mild inebriation. Thanks for talking about booze with me, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So before I take advice from a guy about how to drink or how to do much of anything, I kind of want to get a sense of what he's like. So who was this guy, Vincent Obsipaeus? So he uh, is so obscure that he didn't have a Wikipedia page until recently. So that tells you the guy was pretty obscure. Uh, but he was the principal of a high school in Bavaria uh, in the 1530s. And uh, that's the best job he could get. So he was this incredibly learned guy. He was very good at Greek and Latin. He translated from German into Latin, Latin into German within the Reformation. He worked with Martin Luther. But there were all kinds of um, hints that the guy kept getting frustrated in his professional life. Uh, and it seems likely because he liked to drink and make jokes about how much he liked to drink. So what was the Germany of his day really like? What kind of wine was he steeped in in 1536? It's really interesting. If you go to the northern part of Bavaria, it's called Franconia. Uh, that's the traditional name. Now I think we just call it Franken, which is what they call it in German. It's famous for its white wines. It's got spectacular Rieslings, um, a wonderful grape, the Silvaner, that uh, is a little harder to get here. But it turns out it's a very uh, similar region to where I live here in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes. Cornell is surrounded by a wonderful white wine region. And so I feel a small connection there with him. The research for the book was a lot of fun. But uh, at the time that he was writing this, uh, the Germans, in particular in his area, drank less beer and much, much more wine than they're drinking today. 
We Cities Chronicles, where it says that people were drinking like seven liters a day in hospital, um, both the doctors and the patients. That is a lot of alcohol. Yeah. So what was drinking culture like beyond drinking a lot? Was it a solitary thing, a go-to-the-pub kind of thing, drink at beer halls, outdoors? Yeah, great. So that is exactly what he talks about extensively uh, by implication throughout the poem. In the 1530s, you already have fraternities at German universities. These are the old uh, fraternities where guys would joust each other. So they are emerging from this culture of training to be knights in medieval fashion. You can see spectacular plate mail armor in museums today that these guys would wear. And they were training to go on uh, medieval crusades and that kind of thing. But that stuff was already in the past when they were learning how to do it. It was an obsolete way of life. So these guys were being brought up as young men in this hyper-masculine way of life. They don't really joust or any of that sort of thing anymore. So they started doing drinking competitions as a mark of sort of hardcore he-man prowess. You might recognize some of this kind of culture. And it's very interesting because if you go further back in European literature, you don't really see this kind of thing. If you go to Italy today, it's still very much frowned on to go out and get blitzed in public or to drink, you know, 16, 17 beers. They don't do that kind of thing. Um, they don't do that in Spain. They don't do it in Greece. But of course, they do it in the northern countries. Uh, you see it in Germany. You definitely see it in England. We see it here in the United States. And so it looks like this sort of culture was starting off in the universities and it was starting to take over court life or what he calls professional life. So the pressure to indulge in uh, drinking, even if you don't want to. It's social functions, work parties, that sort of thing was getting overwhelming. The idea of the reciprocal toast started to take off. So you would walk in and say, oh, here's a drink to your health. And you have to say, you have to take it. You have to accept it. And then you were expected to reciprocate. So you had to drink to their health. And sometimes this would go on and on and on and on and on to the point where nobody can get any work done. And then uh, there's all these other records that say that nobody can get ahead in life unless they're willing to participate in this kind of drinking. So if you're a teetotaler, if you don't like, like wine, or if you say, oh, I'm not into that, that's the end of you. Uh, and so he, he looks like he was really trying to choke off this culture, although at the same time, he speaks like a guy who's participated quite heavily in it. Uh, and so he devises this total system for how to cope with alcohol. He says, quite rightly, I think, Booze is not going away. If you go as far back in history as you can go, wine is already there. It's all around the Mediterranean. It's being exported to England. It's being exported to the Middle East. It's grown everywhere. It seems to come out of Georgia uh, as far back as we can go. And he says, all right, so it's here. It's not going away. So how are you going to deal with it? And it's a very different response from what you see in the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous way of dealing with alcohol, which is to say a single drink will set you off on a path you'll never get off of. Um, he doesn't even really um, discuss that idea in part because I think he was struck by the similarity with sex education. So there's an ancient manual from classical Rome called The Art of Love. And if you think about sex ed, what do people learn in school or what are they taught in school? They're not taught to be celibate all their lives. That just doesn't seem to be the way most people live or want to live or even can live. So they're usually taught how to have a responsible relationship, a committed relationship with another person. And he seems to have the same idea about alcohol, that you need to have a responsible relationship with this stuff so you don't go off the rails and end up like all these other uh, these young men that he was teaching in school. And he could see that they're running around, as you mentioned earlier, where are they doing this? They're going to taverns. They're drinking with their friends at parties. Similar culture that you see on university campuses today. And it's also very clear that he wants these guys to clean up their act and get married. 
instead of running around and, and acting like jackasses. He says, if you drink like this, people are watching you. So don't think you're just going to strut into a wedding someday and everybody's going to forget what you were acting like. They saw it the whole time. You might find that it's not such a good idea to keep doing this. It seems to be quite modern in a way in that characterization of how to drink responsibly, which is to say drink to moderation, not to excess, but don't abstain. That's a losing battle, which is totally different from Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Um, even though in recent years we've seen some pushback against that in scientific and health circles. So were you thinking about those things at all when you were translating the book and updating it for the modern era? So yes, and I, I have tried to be as sensitive to this as I can. So of course, Alcoholics Anonymous, it definitely does work for some people. Uh, and so uh, that needs to be said right away. Yes, there's a lot of pushback, people who dislike it and that sort of thing, but it does work. And if it does work, then far be it from me to tell people a different way. But this guy did have a different idea. Uh, and it, what's incredible is it's written in classical Latin. So this guy lived in Germany 500 years ago, but it's the Renaissance. And so he wrote it in classical Latin verse as a poem, uh, which was not his native language, but he clearly knew it as well as a native language. And even though the language is 2,000 years old, it reads as if it were written yesterday. It's absolutely incredible. He says, look, there are three ways really that people drink. I've been looking around. He says, first, you can drink at home with your significant other. Two, you can go out with your drinking buddies and have fun at a bar. Or three, you get invited to social functions. Those are the primary places where people drink. And even the language itself of going out uh, is literally what it says in Latin. So when it came to update this for a modern audience, some people say, well, you, you know, the language sounds so contemporary. And I said, yeah, but that's how it sounds inside my head as I read this stuff. The guy sounds like he's talking straight to us. And the advice and the tips and things that he gives are uh, completely valid today. He tells you etiquette at social functions. What do you do when you walk into a party? He says, first of all, if you're upset about something, you need to get that out of your head right away. You need to plaster on a smile, start to relax. Don't bring your problems in because we all have problems. We don't want to hear yours. Keep it light. And then he's got about 15 do's or don'ts, things you should say, things you should not say, things you should avoid. And uh, they are the same sort of things, I think, that either you were taught or you have heard or you have picked up. Many people pick them up instinctively. Clearly, a lot of people don't. Uh, and he says, well, this is what you're going to do to get it all in order. Yeah, I found myself laughing out loud at some parts of the book, I, I think from page one, honestly. But part of the reason why the book caught my eye in the first place is because it opens with drinking at home, which is pretty much what everyone is doing these days. Isn't this incredible? We could not have timed this. You know, I worked on the book over the last year and a half. Uh, and then suddenly here we all are on lockdown. And he's saying, well, drinking at home is best. And so I've been thinking a little bit about this. What's interesting is he says drinking at home is best, but he doesn't say drinking alone. Uh, and this actually is really very important. Uh, I've been thinking about this and talking a little bit about it. Uh, he would be a huge fan of the virtual happy hour. No doubt about it. For him, drinking is a social thing. He would say drinking by yourself with no one around, that's a very bad idea. It's going to lead you into dark places. Drinking because you're bored alone is a terrible idea. So he doesn't even discuss that. And he says you should be with a significant other. Now, of course, if you have one, that's great. If you don't, then maybe, you know, the virtual happy hour is a time to <laughs> make some new friends that you can drink with. <laughs> Zoom dates, they're a thing now. They're a thing. So even though we can't go out, to meet all of these friends for actual in-person happy hour. I think Vincent's list of ideal drinking buddies and his corresponding list of characters to avoid is pretty darn funny. So 
What's his advice for the ideal people to drink with? Very interesting. He talks about it as the comedy of the drunken life. Uh, that's So there's a set phrase in the ancient world, the comedy of life. Shakespeare uses the same phrase. And, you know, the sort of cast of characters that you meet. And the cast of characters he says you meet in a bar are pretty much the ones you might recognize today. The buzzkill, the blowhard, the person who's telling you how smart they are, the person who grabs onto some little obnoxious thing you unwittingly said and won't let go. And he says, you want to stay away from all those people. So his advice is you want to find people who are like you, which... Uh, is interesting because he specifically says, I don't mean people that look like you. I mean people that are actually like you. They share your interests. They have similar characters, people that will make you better, people that you can look up to uh, rather than people that are going to drag you down, be a bad influence, or people who look like you but don't really have anything in common. Uh, so he says this is really sort of a moral thing. And the more that you are around people who uh, will make you better people. The more you'll be a better person, you'll turn your back on some of these bad pursuits. He does have a couple of funny parts. As you notice, the book is very funny. And he says at one part, you should befriend the rich and powerful because it really doesn't hurt. He says that's the way to open doors to preferments and advance uh, getting ahead in this world. And better alcohol, frankly. It can be that too. I mean, I did think it was funny that among his characters to avoid were ex-monks and heretics, but Catholics were okay, um, which is pretty funny because Obsithaeus got a contemporary of his, a monk, to blurb the book. Yes. And I want to read the blurb because I think it's hilarious. Um, and it does get at what you were talking about earlier with Ovid and the play on the art of love. So here it is. Going to do my best drunken monk impression. Yes, Ovid did do an impressive job of dictating rules for love so that a definite art would channel that insane madness. Far more impressively, though, Vincent teaches the art of drinking so that a definite limit is constantly in force. And while loving is a no-no, drinking is a pleasure, and giving it rules transforms it into a virtue. Pretty much confirms all of my stereotypes about drunken monks, which makes me wonder why only ex-monks are included in this list of characters to avoid. So, yeah, it opens up a whole host of issues, and it shows you right when he was writing this. So this is the 1530s around the city of Nuremberg. What's happening then? The Reformation. It's getting started. So this split is coming into European religious life that it had never seen before. Uh, you know, Martin Luther had gone and nailed up his 95 theses on the door of the cathedral, said, these are the problems I have and here in here my manifesto. And uh, it sort of started to split everything apart. So the Protestants are going in one direction. Catholics are going in another. In the beginning, you say, what's really the difference? Well, there's some theological disputes. But he's very funny. He says, yeah, all that theology stuff, I really don't know. He says, why don't you just kind of keep that stuff off to one side? It's easy to get along with Catholics. It's easy to get along with Protestants. But the ex-monks are different. These are people that have gone back on their word, who have uh, made a vow and they've quit. And I don't know whether that's sort of reflective of commitment to alcohol in general, but he does seem to take them to task for that. So what was the relationship of the Catholic Church to alcohol in this era? Because it, drunken monks are a trope we see everywhere, not just in this book. You see that all through the artwork of that time period. You see it in the vernacular literature, too, for sure. The Germans have this term drink literature that they use for a whole bunch of books that came out around this time. But if you think about uh, 
the role of wine, and it is wine that we're mostly talking about within Christianity. It's there from the very beginning, right? I mean, beginning with the Last Supper, uh, this is the moment where it becomes clear that a, a cup of wine is going to be this mystical thing brought into the ritual. And so Christians of all denominations have always consumed wine. Uh, so there's that, right? Wine will never leave um, the theological aspects of Christianity. But of course, in the Middle Ages, you have the monks making their own wine. Many of them tended to vineyards, uh, and they sold the wine to make money and to fund their activities. And this is where all the satires are always coming in. If you go to, say, the Carmen of Burana, the medieval drinking songs, it's endlessly making fun of monks who sit around boozing inside the monasteries. Now, this guy, uh, Absipeus, the author here, he seems to have befriended all these monks from a local monastery in this little German city, Ansbach. And uh, it's quite clear that they had access to all these big barrels of wine and they invited him to go over and drink with him all the time. It's funny because I took a trip there a couple of summers ago and I thought I would have a celebratory glass of wine and I got there. There wasn't even a single wine shop left in town. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense then that a Catholic church wrestling with its own identity in this time would frown upon drinking games, which would belittle the sacrosanct nature of holy wine. But... You know, Obsipaeus clearly doesn't think drinking games are a problem, and our current culture doesn't. So uh, what were some of the drinking games that he's advising people on how to win? So drinking games go all the way back. Again, as far as we can go, in ancient Greece, they were quite fond of drinking games at the symposium. You know, a symposium literally means a drinking party. Really? So like Plato's, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we've definitely weakened the force of the word. If you go to an academic symposium, you'd be lucky to get a glass of lemonade, right? Uh but a Greek symposium was sort of a ritualized party, uh, generally for men only. And uh, they played a game called Kotobos, which is where they sort of balanced a little disc on a pole. And they would drink uh, wine out of these big cups they call, call kylixes. And you were supposed to kind of pick up the gunk, the lees from the bottom of your cup and fling them and see if you can knock the disc off. So there's a winner to that sort of game. But it's a very different game from the kind of drinking games he describes here. And what he describes here is a, a drinking competition. This is a match, and it's one-on-one, -on -one, or it's a circle of people. So that'd be you, me, three, four, five other people sitting in a circle. We seem to be rolling dice uh, to see what direction the drinks go in. And then a roll of the dice can reverse the direction. So it's kind of like playing sorry or something. And the goal is to try and make the other person pass out. Wow. So that's a very different kind of drinking game. This is dangerous stuff here. And the ironic thing is book three. So he spends the first book telling you how to behave in public when you're drinking. Book two, he tells you this is what alcoholism looks like. And it's, you did not want to do this. You've got to learn how to uh, stop yourself before you go too far. And then book three, it's almost like flipping the book upside down. He says, I'm going to tell you the secret way to win drinking games. And trust me, I've had long experience. I know exactly what I'm talking about. You can trust me because a number of times I've gotten so drunk that I've fallen down in a pigsty and slept all night there. So I actually know what I'm talking about here. Uh, and he ended up getting in a lot of hot water for publishing this third book. I found this in other things he wrote where uh, he says, oh, yeah, everybody gave me a hard time about book three. I really they said I took it too far. He goes, I don't care. Uh, but so his secret to winning the games is pretty interesting. He says there is no secret way to stretch your stomach and swallow up a whole lake of wine. You just can't do that. So he says the secret is this. You have to force the other person to match you one to one. So every single time they take a drink, you have to call it out loud. You wait for the other person to pound their drink and you nurse yours. And then you make sure that they match you because what happens after three or four or five, somebody starts to forget. 
And then as it goes on and on, the other person will forget. You say, ah, 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 you still owe me two drinks. Don't stop now. You owe me those two drinks. And the other person will start to get sick and then start pouring the wine out on the ground in secret. And he says, that's how you know you're going to win this one. Sound advice. He gives another piece of advice. He says, you should never compete against a woman. You won't win. Well, this guy's advice just keeps getting better and better. (laughs) So, I mean, given that there is so little to disagree with Obsipaeus on, it hurts me that he was forgotten for so long. How did you rediscover him? And what made you want to bring his wisdom to light in the present day? So this book grows out of the absolute perfect ideal of what a university should be. So here at Cornell University, where I uh, where I work, we are in the center of a wine growing region, spectacular white wines. What does that mean? It means that we have a viticulture and enology program with faculty who study these things, who go out and consult on vineyards. We have uh, graduate students who train to be sommeliers, wine competitions, all that sort of thing. And about six years ago, a friend and colleague of mine in that area of the university came over one time and she said, hey, you know, uh, do the Greeks and Romans ever talk about wine? And I kind of laughed. I said, that's the only thing they ever talk about. And so fast forward, we ended up co-teaching an experimental course on wine culture. So what have human beings done with wine from antiquity through today? So they drink it, but we drink it in all kinds of different ways. And so it was out of the research for that course Uh, looking around. I said, well, I know a lot about the ancient world, but what happens in the Middle Ages? What happens in the Renaissance? And I'm looking around the Renaissance, and I I remember saying one day, what on earth is this book? I've never heard of this thing. It was a classic for 100 years. It was reprinted over and over. People read this thing. There's other imitations of it. And then it was banned along with everything else this guy wrote, maybe because he was a Protestant, but maybe, as we said earlier, for a specific reason. Um, And then it just was completely forgotten. And so I was excited to rediscover this thing and kind of dust it off and read it and find how totally contemporary it is. Michael Fontaine has been writing a series of posts about his new book, How to Drink, for the Best American Poetry blog run by friend of the magazine David Lehman, which we've got links to in the show notes. It looks like a virtual happy hour might even be in the offing, so do check it out. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.